So uh, a couple of things I want to say right off the bat first. That was a great job on that and the band. A lot of the music that we play, of course, you know, as I've said before many, many times, it all speaks to what we're talking about in indirect ways, which is the fun that we try to remind ourselves to be a part of here in 11.11, which is that everything, if we're paying attention, speaks to us of the, of the ground of our being, of the love at the ground of our being, the possibility, the redemptive possibilities at the ground of our being. So we do things like uh, Comfortably Numb, Crazy Train, two of us going home, this idea of what sin is. We think of sin as something we do when sin is actually something we're not seeing, okay? Sin is actually what we're not seeing. And all of us are really just trying to get home, ultimately. That's really what our lives are about. And sadly, we look around the world and we see everybody doing everything but empowering that path home. Hey, I want to do a couple of things too real quick. I want to say thanks to, uh, I don't see Austin in here right now, but I want to say thanks. Oh, there's Austin right there in front of me. You blend into the backdrop there behind you. So I want to see Austin and, and Xavier and um, Jack and, and Ed. I want to say, we want to thank them for all the work they do. You know, the technology... The technology involved in this and going online and then now doing a hybrid where we're talking to people online, we're talking to you in here, it's a crazy reality, right? None of us were really trained for this in the church field, so to speak. And so we're juggling, and then we have a remote service here, and so we're constantly juggling, picking up, putting down, picking up, putting. It's a chore, and these guys really do a great job. Ed also, I don't know if you've noticed the slides that uh, all the words are on and all of that. Ed does such a great job with that, so thank you, Ed. It's so much fun. It's just so much fun. I hope you go back and you just watch the service because the slides are so much fun that actually everything is speaking to the message. So here we are in the season of Lent. And so uh, Lent is a season of 40 days, right? It's a 40 days excluding Sundays, but including Saturdays between Ash Wednesday, which I'm not sure how many of you are here. I don't remember seeing maybe a few of you here that were there, got the ashes. Um, I, it was interesting because when we do it in the traditional church, from ashes you will, you will go to ashes, you will return from dust to dust and to dust and dust, you return that kind of thing. I always wanted to go up to people, and I didn't do it this year because I wasn't in charge of the imposition of ashes, but I wanted to go up and go, you are stardust, you know, <laughs> you are stardust. Don't forget the very source of your life and the very source you go back to, it's, which is just a whole different way of orienting ourselves, I think, uh, around, around this, this time, this, this traditional high season. It's also 40 days that we sort of reflect on who we are, what, we, what we're missing out on. So it is a chance to kind of go inward. We think of Jesus in the 40 days that he spent in the wilderness, temptation. We think of uh, the Israelites, the 40 years they spent in exile. We think of um, uh, even Buddha, who spent 47 days and nights out underneath the banyan tree, Siddhartha, Prince Siddhartha, until he suddenly woke up, it says. He, he became awake, and, uh, which means literally that's what Buddha means. And so we have this chance to kind of wake up. And so a lot of us think in terms of what we give up for Lent. So uh, I thought about this. Um, go ahead and we, we'll see this first one. I don't always observe Lent, but when I do, I make sure it's to diet. Right? Uh, so, I mean, we know people like that. I'm sure that none of us are in here that do that. My one favorite one here is the toddler. Gave up Dr. Pepper, made it for two hours. <laughs> and then the next one, of course, gave up sweets, birthdays on Sunday. Oh, that one is maybe a little bit uh, hidden. Um, here's my favorite one. Maybe you'll get this. If, I don't know if you can see the rats or the mice on this cat. <laughs> is Lent almost over? <laughs> So we see this, basically what I want to suggest is that we are in this season because it's a season 
of waking up. It's a season of wake-up calls. And to be honest, I, I, I think I wrote in the blog post this week or the, or the, or the e-blast, I'm really having trouble with wake-up calls because, I mean, we've been in the midst of a wake-up call for over two years, right? And prior to that, I mean, if you listen to the song that we just sang, I Am Willing, 40, 30 years ago she wrote this song, it's always been an issue with us as human beings. We seem to be unable to get past our sense of who we are in relation to one another. And it causes us all sorts of grief and pain to the extremes even. So um, Anthony DeMello, who's one of my favorite uh, writers and spiritual teachers, he's a Jesuit priest. He wrote this, and I think it speaks to where we are in this season. I hope you can follow with this and stay with this throughout the season. Spirituality means waking up. Most people, even though they don't know it, are asleep. They're born asleep, they live asleep, they marry asleep, they, bear, they breed children in their sleep, they die in their sleep without ever waking up. They never understand the loveliness and the beauty of this thing we call human existence. Spirituality means waking up. Now, when, Livin, when, when Linda first started this service, which was over in Wesley Hall, and it was in the round, and it met in the evening, on Sunday evenings, it was called Round Table Worship. You know, so we met in the round, and we, we probably will get back in the round once we, once we end up with some extra cameras here, and we can kind of be in the round and figure out how we do that in this space again. But we, we met in the round, and then when Charles took over, Charles Gaby took this service over about 14, 15 years ago or so, and we, I took over the music with the band, and, and we sat down, and we were thinking about a good title for it because we we're going to move to the morning. On Sunday, we wanted a different name. A lot of you know this story. So we were trying to think of a different time to meet, not just 11 o'clock, but something odd. Not 11.10, because 11.10, 11.15 is kind of typical. So we said 11.11. Rolls off the tongue, has that kind of parallel structure, looks really interesting. And then for the next several months and weeks, and even to this day occasionally, we get calls or emails. Do you know what that means? And we're like, no. I mean, that's what they would say. Or they'd say, do you know how special that number is? And we go like, well, no, really. And then, of course, we, we saw this. 1111 is a wake-up call, inviting you to tune into the realms of spirit and experience beyond the veil of illusion. Pretty much says it all, right? <laughs> like I said, if I haven't troubled you and if I haven't confused you and, left, and you've left thinking about something because it certainly isn't the way you always heard it before, then I'm not doing my business, my job, or you're just not listening. We just thought it was an interesting time to start, but we realized that we really are in this place of thinking about our faith and our spirituality in deeper ways that perhaps might wake us up to the illusions we're living in. And you would have thought that the pandemic would do it. You would have thought that perhaps the racism and the, and the reckoning and the awareness and the waking up to sexist, uh, sexism and gender uh, issues and inequalities and, uh, and Black Lives Matter and the death of, of in, innocent individuals, you would have thought all of that would wake us up. And now Ukraine being attacked by Russia and the fear and the anxiety that uh, DeAndrea voiced so well for all of us. Um, you would think that maybe we'd wake up, but I don't think we're waking up. I think what we're doing is what we always do, right? We're like a dog with a bone. We run to the center where the bone is. You might call it Jesus or God or Buddha or energy or whatever it is, and then we drag it back to our corner because that's where we feel safe. But what really the kingdom calls us to be about is to get out there in the middle of things and to represent, <laughs> if you will, represent the ground of being. Lou Adams, who was the director of the Pastoral Care Center over at Bright Divinity School, when Linda and I were studying there and I was doing an internship in pastoral counseling back in the day, 
He would always take us aside after watching us, after supervising our counseling with a client, and he would say, um, you realize what's going on? And we were trying to describe everything, and we were going through this intricate sort of detail about what it was they were suffering from and how we were trying to approach it. And then he said, no, it's just a power struggle. He said, all relationship is power. It's all a power struggle. And for the longest time, that so offended us. Because we were like, no, it's this, dep- it's this darker sort of subconscious stuff going on. It's these other issues that are going on, these repressed kinds of things. And he said, but the, the bottom line is it's all power. Because people are missing something, even if they don't know what they're missing, and they're trying to get it. And oftentimes, everything is transactional. Everything becomes transactional rather than relationship, relational. Our looks, right? We struggle with our looks. It's a power struggle with ourselves in the mirror, but it's also a power struggle with everybody else that we see because we're already comparing ourselves. We're already, you know, we're, already, we're already looking and wondering and wondering what they're thinking. We're already in this relational sense of power, who's, who's got, the, who's got the, the self-esteem and how do I get it for myself. We do it at our jobs, we do it online, we do it at work or home or even at the grocery store. It feels like life is a struggle between navigation and negotiation. And I think what it really reveals to me is that sin is really best understood then as disconnection as opposed to connection. Racism, sexism, um, globalism, all of our understanding of life revolves around this idea of, of disconnection rather than connection. So um, what I want us to think about then is I want to think about what we overlook with this narrative that we live by and just how interconnected we are and what are the consequences of this um, deeper sort of, this sleep, this deeper sleep that we're in and yet that is really a dire reality for all of us. So let's talk about sin because we love sin, right? If I put that on there, I thought about doing that, putting that just as a heading, sin, come join us on Sunday. You know, and I thought, well, maybe somebody would come just out of curiosity or mockery or something like that, but I figure most of you would be, uh, you know, stay home for this one. The earliest followers of Jesus fell into small communities of sharing, collaborative inclusion. After Jesus died, they went into different, different communities, all of them scattering, and by 70 AD, the fall of the temple, they went scattering across the whole Middle East region, and they were in different communities with different understandings about what they'd just experienced. And within the first generation, everything had already started to change except for one thing. They were centered around community. They were centered around trying to figure out what that meant to be in community. They were even diverse in their own makeup, Jews, Gentiles, slaves, women, men. The whole role structure was redefined. And then by the mid-third, fourth century, the Roman Empire made Christianity a state religion. And for nearly 1,700 years, much of the church has held Christianity captive under the influence of power rather than the inclusive and and, uh, worshiping our interconnectedness with all of life. So even today, you can see it, right? Our churches are still split over how we are to orient ourselves to the sacred. And even more so, what's right and what's wrong. And why? Because we're still running out to the center, grabbing the bone and running back to our own corners, rather than sitting out there and sharing that bone with everybody else and figuring out how the messiness works. You understand what I'm saying? So even now the church is figuring out who who belongs in the church, LGBTQ, who belongs in the church, who doesn't belong in the church. Thankfully, our community and our church understand inclusiveness and affirm that. 
But it's not perfect. We still struggle with what we understand. And even this idea of environmental disaster, environmental crisis in the latest UN report, and we can't decide on whether or not it's true or not, right? Because wake-up calls sometimes have to hit us in the face. I mean, they have to knock us on the ground. And as many of you know, and you've looked back at your own lives, at your own wake-up calls that you've had, it probably wasn't the first one that finally got to you, right? They've been coming for years. And somehow cognitive dissonance, somehow denial, somehow distraction, we're able to live with a lot of power struggle before we find a come to sense about the illusions we live in. So the church could see this early on, and the church began to devise what's right belief and wrong belief, and they came up with these, with these seven deadly sins. Um, they were first actually created by this guy named Gregory, Pope Gregory the Great in the 6th century. Prior to that, these, these sins didn't really exist, which is interesting. And then the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas kind of solidified them more clearly and then made all sorts of other counter kinds of things like the seven heavenly virtues, the, uh, the five sacred powers. And they sort of created this thing that the more you looked at it, the more it was like a Rube Goldberg machine, right? Because how were you supposed to deal with this sin? Well, you have to go that way and then come back this way and then you have to go that way, pick up an indulgence, an indulgence over here and a confession over there. Or if you're in the Protestant church, you just need to believe right. And that'll take care of some of that. You see how that works. It's still power. It's still about this transactional relationship. So we have these seven, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, anger, and sloth. And then their corresponding virtues were humility, charity, chastity, gratitude, temperance, patience, and diligence. I only mention that here because that's the typical ones, and I'm throwing those out the window. I will look at the typical uh, deadly sins because it gives us a framework for how to understand them in a different way. Isn't it interesting that killing's not up here? Isn't it interesting that uh, hatred is not up here? So good news is coming. Oops, about burden of sin. Oh, I like that. I just wanted to show that one. That's what we think of as sin, right? We think of sin as this burden. I love how it's always presented, too. It's either weighting down, it's uh, red, it's clouded in fire or shadowed in darkness. I love that because it's bad. It's bad. So we need, it's good to know what's bad, right? We don't have to deal with it. We can avoid it. <laughs> so good news is coming. So here's what I want to think about. What's good in all of this? I want, to think with you, I want you to think with me that this idea that I heard in seminary once triggered this whole path that I got on, which was to try to reframe everything, to try to understand things less dualistically, less out there and in here and other than and us versus them and all of that, and to think more non-dually, which is somehow we're all caught up in this mess together and we're all interconnected with the world around us, the very life we live in, the very cosmos and stars we come from. And so... The saying that I heard was that the best things in life are the easiest to corrupt. I've already told you why that is. The best things in life are the easiest to corrupt because we're like dogs with a bone. We go out the center, we grab our bone, we run back to our corner. I'm going to stay with that image. Mike, you like that image, right? Our vet, our resident vet here, he likes that. He knows what I'm talking about, yeah. Grab the bone, run back to the corner, right, where it's safe and we can live. Now, there's other, there's other animals in the corner that we like, right? There's other animals with us there, so we'll share our bone, but we just go out there and grab and come back. So what I want to say is, best things in life are the easiest corrupt. So the alternative to that, that I think we can wake up to, is in this idea of understanding what sin is, is that what if, in fact, the best things in life are the easiest to corrupt, then maybe embedded in the worst things that we think is actually a hint 
of the best things. If, in fact, what we're simply doing is corrupting them because we're not paying attention and we're living under this illusion, then perhaps what we're missing is that the best things are actually embedded in that anxiety, that the best possible things are actually embedded in what we think are the worst things. It's a little confusing, I think, maybe, but we'll stay with it. We're going to keep with it, and I'll keep bringing it up each week. So the next one, please. So we're going to talk about the deadly sins in a new way. Isn't that pretty? Doesn't that just change how you think about it? Sin, it's nice and green. Grows, it's cool. Wake-up calls are interesting. You can take up your own life where you experience them, and if you look back, as I said, you find out sometimes that you had had these wake-up calls all along. And the problem is, the way Einstein put it, is that we can't solve a problem with the same kind of thinking that gets us there in the first place. So we have to do something different. We have to look for the good stuff that's embedded in what we think is the bad stuff. We have to look there because it's the only place we keep not looking. It's the only place we keep avoiding because we've been told to. Because we've been structured around this relationship of power and transaction. As Isaac Asimov put it this way, Let's see, is he next? Yeah. Universe is not quite as you thought it was, so you'd better rearrange your beliefs because you're cert you certainly can't rearrange the universe. So what if sin is less? Now hold on to this because it's not a quote, but it's going to come up time and time again throughout the series. What if sin is less about doing about what we do that is wrong? Okay, what if sin is less about what we do wrong and it's more about what we fail to do Right. What if sin is less about what we do wrong, but more about what we fail to do that is right? We need a better understanding of this idea of sin and sinful acts and what they speak to us today. So Linda and I, when we were, when we were in seminary, we attended our first, well, not our first, we attended our first feminism class in seminary. I'd attended feminism studies when I was at UT in, in, uh, in Austin, because I was a social worker and they had, these they had these courses there. And so I was very much in, you know, embedded in that and, and, and immersed in that. One of my least favorite authors was Mary Daly. Gynecology. Um, what was the other one? Beyond God the Father. Some of you read Mary Daly. Some of you should try to read Mary. That should be one of our dangerous books that we ought to read. You will never hate yourself as much if you're a man after reading Mary Daly. Or, as my case would be, you will never hate Mary Daly as much until after you read her book. <laughs> it was so hard to read that stuff. And as we sat in the feminist class, what was interesting, our, our professor immediately structured us where the women were in the inner circle, the men were on the outer circle, and we were not allowed to speak. Interesting. It was a fascinating experience. So I, didn't, I haven't thought of Mary Daly for a long time because I'm still dealing with the trauma <laughs> of that reality, which I believe is true. I believe much of what she said was very much true. But the reality still is it's hard to face your conditioning, right? It's hard to deal with your conditioning as we look at Black Lives Matter, as we look at even hashtag Me Too, as we look at all this reality in, as we look at the empire orientation of church even. It's hard to face that with an open, awakened mind because we live with an illusion of conditioning. So, Mary Daly wrote this quote that I stumbled on this week. The word sin is derived from the Indo-European root, she's after my own idea, I love to study this, is derived from the Indo-European root, E-S-S, which means to be. What? Sin is derived from the root word, which means to be. 
not anything else, just to be. When I discovered this etymology, she said, I intuitively understand, understood that for a person trapped in patriarchy, which is the religion of the entire planet, to be in the fullest sense is to sin. All right, let's take a look at this and unpack this just for a couple of quick minutes. All right, so next one, keep going, next one. Oh, I love this right here. Better be a lion for a day than a sheep for all your life. Be a powerful lamb. <laughs> be a curious sheep, right? Okay, anyway, we'll go on to something else. All right, next one here. So I want to go over these really quickly, and then we'll wrap up with the music here. So first, if you look at sin, it's root word S, to be. I love the idea with, I put Shakespeare up there too, or not to be. <laughs> because I think what we do is we think about avoiding things is, is not being something, but what we're actually doing is we are simply disconnecting from what's possible in the mess in the middle, right there where the bones are. <laughs> we just are afraid to stay out there, and so we miss being, right? So sin is this idea of to be. Uh, somebody has said, I think, in the, I think in the Protestant church, we talked about sin as missing the mark. I love that idea, missing the mark. But here's the thing. It seems like when people are talking about that, you intuitively know what they're talking because you've heard what missing the mark means. But nobody's ever said that. It wasn't written anywhere. It's part of the institutional language of what missing the mark actually means. What does missing the mark really mean? Good question. Hang on to it. Now we look at pride. Pride you think of as standing up tall, standing erect, which has a very masculine imagery to it if you think about it. If you think, okay, anyway, I thought that would get a laugh. I don't know, I thought that would get a laugh. <laughs> pride comes from the words per and essay, which means literally to move forward or to stand in front of. It doesn't mean to be better than or to feel really good about yourself. It means to move forward as if to invite what? Pride means to invite. It means to move forward. So then I came up with this idea of worship. What is worship? What are we about in here? Why are we here? And if you look at worship, again, we think of this dualistic idea, traditionally, that we are doing something for something out there and invoking it in here. But in fact, worship is rooted in the words worth, which means value or to have life, to give life to it, or Ship, which means to shape, to form, to give shape to. So if you really think about it, worship is practicing the art of giving shape to the worth of one another. Boom. That's a really hard thing, I think, for us to get our heads around. When I was at T.C. Murph, Tarrant County uh, um, Medical Educational Foundation, a methadone clinic for my first job as a social worker. I worked there for two years with narcotic addicts. A hundred narcotic addicts I had on a regular rotation in my caseload. I was 22 years old. Most of them were in their 40s and 50s, some 30s. Intimidating, overwhelmed. I've talked about her before, Miss Legato, who was the nurse there and had been there for the 18 years of the organization. She was a wonderful little short Italian woman just had a, had a bite like a bulldog, like a, like a bulldog, but she had a heart that was just warm and embracing. And so she could really be firm, but she really loved deeply. And so one of the things that I asked her about is that early on, I, when I was asking her about how I should relate to these people, she said that the thing that we have to learn is to, that there is a deep belief that um, something is missing. 
Everyone has lost, every one of these folks have lost their sense of worth, that they even have anything left to give to life. Instead, she said, what they really are wearing is like, that's where I got the idea of the t-shirt that says, love me, right? The idea, she would say that. If you see them as coming into the room and they've got the shirt on that says, love me, it sort of really shows what's going on outside this hard veneer, outside this manipulative sort of structure that they've got themselves in, this transactional way of relating to you so that they can get more methadone or so that they can stay on the program. She said, it's created a massive black hole in their lives. It's like a bottomless pit for hunger. And the thing is, is that they've lost their sense of connection, their sense of self-acceptance. Once when I was, 20, when I was 22, uh, it was like my last of the second year so toward the middle, I was so overwhelmed with being intimidated, I could never really get a handle on how to deal with folks because they were. I mean, these are hardcore individuals, hardened. They've lived their life in manipulating and trying to get past the legal system. So when they would come into me, I was intimidated by this just out of college. Ms. Legato took me aside and she sat me down and she said, what do you see when you see your client? And she had to ask me that several times before I finally got to the answer that, that I knew she was looking for and that I was refusing to see. I said, I see them as a power struggle. I see them as intimidating and manipulative and trying to beat me, trying to get the better of me. She says, you know what I see? And I said, what? I see my children. She said, I see my sons, my daughters, my family. Every one of them lost. They're just trying to find their way back home. She says, if you can begin to see them in that way, then you begin to invite them into something that they have forgotten how to see and that most of us don't see. So that when we think about Colin Kaepernick, who took a knee back in 2016 and continued to do so over the years that he continued in football, that what he was doing was not the proud, defiant act of somebody who wasn't patriotic. I'm going to argue that. I don't know that any of you would, would argue with me on that point. Patriotism, like so many things, becomes like that bone in the middle of the, room, in the, middle of the grass, right? And we just take it back. It's like a golden calf, my bone and my friend's bone. <laughs> not sure as you don't understand. You're acting wrong. When he took a knee, what he was doing was he was literally standing in front of all of us and inviting us to see the worth of one another. Do you see that? He literally was not inviting us to see the worth of black people or certainly standing up in honor of those who had been killed and continued to be oppressed by, by police in different parts of the country, but he was also standing up for something maybe he wasn't even aware of. But that was this pride that says it mirrors our worth for one another. Worthiness is that shared equality, that pride that invites us to see that's at the heart of every one of these deadly sins. And worship in here is this opportunity to practice remembering how we're supposed to be doing that. So as we explore the other six deadly sins in the coming weeks, and we explore their inherent opposed or oppressed virtue, I'm going to invite you again to remember this idea. Sin is not so much about what we do wrong, it's much more about what we fail to do right. So that when the early church, when the early church defined human life and its struggles in terms of these seven deadly sins and what's right behavior and what's wrong behavior and the consequences for them, we're still living in that shadow today. It's a zero-sum perspective and a non-zero-sum reality the sooner we realize we live in a non-zero-sum reality, the more this world has a chance of surviving us. We have a chance of surviving as well. 
So this last one to come up here. Life pretty much comes down to three things. Everything changes. Everything is connected. So we pay attention. I actually wanted the other image to come up that I forgot to mention, which was something wonderful is about to happen. That, that billboard that I saw on the highway once traveling with my son out, west, out to east. I want to suggest to you this last thought that when we're caught up in stories and these actions of power and greed that we see going on, maniacal, power-hungry people across the world, greedy, capitalist-hungry people in our own back, backyards, pointing fingers at one another, uh, judging one another, when we see this kind of reality of this divisiveness, the better story to tell is the one where pride means we stand in front of others, not because we're proud, but because we recognize others' worths. And when we stand, we are inviting them to see that worth in a mirror. That's what it means to be proud. In a sense, as I said, sin better. Amen.